I'm Noel Halsman, and this is Open Content from Yahoo Finance. I made this podcast to bring attention to the entrepreneurs and innovators in Canadian business. Every week, at least at the start, I will be sitting down with someone who is leading their industry, pioneering a new product or service, or just making important things happen. Join me as we go from the corner office to an open concept. This week, you have to say no until the time is right. You know, I've never been a a really competitive person by nature, but just really liked being out in the forest and running. I'm Brendan Brazier and co-founder of Vega. When Brendan Brazier was 15, and like many 15-year-olds, dreaming about being a pro athlete, he made a realization that would separate him, literally and figuratively, from the pack. His road to success was not going to start at the track or in the weight room. No, it would begin in the kitchen with what he ate, and almost as importantly, what he didn't eat. It's those decisions that would determine how healthy he would be and how fast he could get back out there and begin his next workout. Brendan's search for the best possible diet led him to experimenting with different protein shakes and nutritional plans. From there, Vega was born. What started in 2003 as a frankly awful tasting and very costly protein powder is now a line of bars, snacks, and nutritional supplements available in almost every major grocery chain, pharmacy, and health food store in North America. Today, Vega is owned by French giant Danone. Brandon and his partner, Charles Chang, sold it three years ago for $550 million US. Brandon is still actively involved with Vega, working on his product lines and serving as an ambassador for the brand. And though for most people, selling your company for more than half a billion dollars would be a complete game changer, Brandon insists little in his life is different today. I grew up in in North Vancouver, uh, most of it in Lynn Valley, close to um, the headwaters, which is why I think I started running in the first place. I just like being outside and being up there. And when I first started trying to get fit, it was really because I I wanted to be a better hockey player. I started playing hockey really late in life. Um, I think I was around 13, which of course, you know, is, is pretty late. So. I was, I was behind, my skating wasn't as good, and I thought maybe I could offset my lack of skating ability with better fitness, so I started running before school um, in, in the forest, and uh, just turned out I actually liked that a lot better than playing hockey, so I, uh, I did played hockey for two years and didn't really get any better. I don't think the fitness actually helped me be a better hockey player, but I, I realized that I liked running. This makes sense to me. I have a 14-year-old son, Kids at this age tend to gravitate towards team sports like soccer and hockey and basketball, not running. However, in my 20s and 30s, I put a ton of hours in running the trails of Lynn Valley. I know what an addictive place it can be. Because I grew up in a place where, you know, some some of the best running anywhere is, um, I was spoiled with that and, uh, and I took to it right away. I just really enjoyed it and then it naturally seemed like a, a good fit to at least try some track in, in school and um, that's kind of how I got started. I was curious, uh, when you initially decided that you wanted to be a pro athlete, was that at 15 or was that did that come a little bit later when you thought, okay, I could make a career out of this? Well, I wanted to, um, even before that, when I first started playing hockey, I, you know, of course, as most kids growing up in Canada, I wanted to, to be in the NHL. Of course, that's uh, kind of the common goal, but uh, realized that wasn't realistic pretty early on and then yeah I thought well okay I can run I like running and realize that you know it's really hard to make a career as a runner 
as I'm sure you're aware, especially as a Canadian runner, you know, there, there aren't a lot of professional Canadian runners. It's just not really a thing. But I realized triathlon was probably more obtainable just because it's a sport where there's a little bit more potential money to be made. And, and I started swimming and cycling and found out that I really enjoy those things as well. So thought that was probably my best shot at having a full-time career as an athlete. The point that really intrigued me was on the issue of, of where you identified opportunities for improvement and, and it was in around recovering uh, with, the of course, the idea of being able uh, to train more. Uh, you need to recover before you can get back out there. But that realization that recovery is the answer now, of course, there's lots of pro athletes, particularly pro cyclists, well-documented. They found a different way to get back out in a hurry, and that was through performance-enhancing drugs. That was clearly not the decision you took. No, well, I, you know, it was the sort of thing back, back when I was starting out that it really wasn't even known about unless you were in that sort of underground circle, I guess. And you know, triathlon as well, there was never as much money in it. It was never as big a thing as, as pro cycling. You know, drugs weren't even really available as far as I knew or an option. And of course, you know, it's not something I would have been interested in because obviously it's it's cheating, but also long-term health benefits and, you know, just not not the sort of thing that, that would have interested me because the reason I got into this first place was to uh, to be healthy, to feel good, to perform well, but not just now, also have a good, a good life that, um, you know, your body doesn't break down once you're done racing, which, you know, does for a lot of people. Yeah, that make that makes sense, of course. And then if the answer is, is food or nutrition, how did you go about knowing good nutrition from bad nutrition? And the obvious one, of course, I, somebody who's who's a triathlete and an active runner, have been for years, people always say to me and to others that, oh, well, you need protein, you need meat. Now, we, we know that's not the case, but that's the default in our society. You drew different conclusions. Can you talk a little bit about sort of that process of discovery of how you knew what food groups to investigate and, and where you wanted to go? Yeah, it was really trial and error. I didn't know in the beginning at all. I just... I thought that obviously food helps rebuild and repair muscle tissue, you know, training breaks it down, you actually get weaker after training. And we know that if whatever it is we eat, good or bad, that's going to help fabricate uh, the new cells that, that we're building. So it seemed to me to make sense that if we got that right, there would be an advantage there, there would be a, a possible gain. So. I tried different ways of eating. I, I tried high carb and low carb and high protein, low protein, you know, a whole bunch of different things that um, maybe, a, you know, a lot of athletes don't really experiment with that much, but I kept a really tight training log and nutrition journal and I could see the correlation and I could see when my training was going the best, I was recovering better, I was feeling better, I had more energy, um, I didn't have the soreness or the stiffness. And I could correlate that to what I had eaten in the days prior. And it became quite clear that when I ate more vegetables, more salads, more alkaline forming foods, it, it really made a difference. So I started to get interested in, in trying plant-based and then I, I did try completely plant-based. But at first it didn't really work that well for me. I was um, quite low energy. I didn't recover as well. And I think it's now, obviously, I know looking back that I just didn't do it right. I was eating a lot of starchy, refined foods. I wasn't eating 
all the things I needed. And I, I wasn't getting enough protein because I was eating those refined foods that don't have a lot of protein. So of course, protein helps rebuild and repair muscle tissue that you need, but of course it doesn't have to come from meat as, as I found. So I was making blender drinks with um, hemp protein, pea protein, rice protein, greens even, you know, you blend up enough greens, you get quite a bit of protein because percentage wise they're around uh, 45% protein. So you mix enough of those in and you actually do get quite a lot through vegetables. And then I started making that blender drink, it really helped. And that's when, when I became uh, a real believer in good, clean, plant-based nutrition as a way to, to boost performance. Overall, how long was that sort of period of discovery? I, I read somewhere that you were a vegetarian first, and then was it eight years later that you became a vegan or, or relied on a plant-based diet? Yeah, it was about a year and a half, I think, that uh, that it took to, to kind of figure it out. Because, of course, back then, information was not as readily available. You know, this was early 90s, so information um, was just, in general, harder to come by, and especially information about... Um, plant-based nutrition. So it was really just a lot of trial and error. Like there, there was just not a lot out there. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and I know, uh, you know, I relied on um, the Thrive Diet book to inform a lot of my thinking. And obviously that didn't exist uh, when you were going through this process. Right. Yeah. I started off um, just really developing ideas around what I thought good nutrition was. I was um, improving faster than a lot of people I was uh, I was training with and and they got curious as to to what I was doing and, and I was talking about my diet a little bit more at that point and really then just wrote out a few pages of frequently asked questions like where do I get my protein my essential fats my iron my calcium I mean all these things uh, what do you eat before a workout what do you eat after what do you eat during and then I just kind of took those frequently asked questions and put them into book form and that eventually evolved into the, the Thrive Diet that came out, um, I guess it was 2007. Talk to me a little bit about your meeting with, with Charles Chang. He, at the time, was an, an entrepreneur at, also in Vancouver. I understand he had a company called Sequel uh, Naturals, and it was a new company. How did that meeting come about for you two? Yeah, that's right. He um, he had started a company in 2001 called Sequel Naturals, and um, you know he was just he was a North fan as well. He was um, turned out really close by to, to where I lived, and he was uh, he was selling these products out of his garage. You know, it was a really small company, just him, one man show, and um, yeah, he he was doing great though. He was doing really really well. He started importing maca from Peru and introduced that to Canada. People didn't know anything about it. And that's actually how I met him. I heard him on the radio talking about maca and the benefits of maca. And I got curious about that because he described a lot of the symptoms I was having. So, for example, um, at, at the time I was overtraining, I think, and I was, um, I was having sugar cravings and starch cravings. Um, I, f I found I was actually gaining weight. I was gaining body fat, even though I exercised a huge amount. I was having trouble sleeping. So all these symptoms are things that he described, and I thought that was really interesting. And he said it was correlated to adrenal fatigue, which when I looked into made a lot of sense for me because that, that is a, a symptom of overtraining. So I tried maca. I went and got some of, uh, of the maca that he was importing, put it in my blender drink, and within about six weeks, I really noticed a big difference. So it wasn't instant. It was more of, um, 
more of treating the cause of the problem, which was uh, adrenal burnout, as opposed to treating the symptom of fatigue, which is often done by, by stimulants, caffeine and, and sugar, which work, but at short term. So I really like that long-term approach and how it was really fixing the problem. So kept doing that. And then I, I got in touch with him. I wanted to see if, if his new company could sponsor me being an athlete and, and racing. And he said, oh, gee, you know, I never even thought of that. It's uh, such a new company, but why don't you come over and we'll, uh, we'll chat. So I went over to his place in, in Blue Ridge in North Van, and, and I lived in Lynn Valley. And yeah, we talked probably for six hours. And by the end of that six-hour conversation, we had come up with a plan to make a replica of my plant-based smoothie formula with his maca. And, uh, and that was basically how it started. And then did you decide right off that, okay, we're going to launch a new company together that you weren't going to join SQL, but that there was going to be a sort of a, a new thing entirely? Well, in the beginning, it started off, we had, you know, the first Vega products, it still said SQL on there. So it was part of, part of SQL. And then Vega just became by far the biggest part of SQL. So we just renamed the company Vega. It was just easier because people were getting confused. They're like, well, what's SQL? What's Vega? What, like, what's what here? So it was really just to make it more streamlined. Now, obviously, Charles was coming at this from a business background. You were coming at it from a nutrition, athletic background. What was your role in the launch of the company? Were you the, the formulator of, of the product? Were you the ambassador? Can you talk to a little bit about that entrepreneurial beginning? Yeah, it was really, you know, that, that was one of the things that I think made this, this really work is that Charles and I have very different skill sets. And he, um, you know, he managed the day to day. He ran the business he knew how to do that. He'd already been doing that with his previous business with bringing in Maca. And um, I did, yeah, the formulation and the education. So I wrote a book, as I mentioned, and, and I was going around talking about that and doing the education there and explaining why someone might want to consider paying $75 for a tub that has 15 servings in it um, and doesn't taste very good. So it was, uh, it was quite a hard job in the beginning, but eventually it caught on. People started trying it and, and they felt better. And then, uh, and then it just spread a word of mouth, really. So yeah, we had very clearly defined roles, which I think is, is very important. And I see that mistake made with some new entrepreneurs is they just get a whole bunch of really good, smart, talented, ambitious people together and say, hey, let's make a company. But there's, it's not defined what each person has to do to round it out. And uh, there's a lot of people stepping on toes and a lot of crossover that I I've observed um, with some of the, the newer companies I've, I've seen form, but I think that's one of the reasons that uh, it really worked for us. A part that I would think would be quite personally stressful for you, although maybe you were in a different phase of your life, was the fact that your credibility as the spokesperson for uh, for Vega would be dependent upon your athletic prowess, right? That The fact that you won ultra marathons and that you were a pro triathlete, yet the commitment that, that would take to succeed in the sport would really dig into the amount of time that you had to grow the business. Like there, there's some real tension there in terms of number of hours in the day. Yeah, no, that was definitely something I, I had to make a decision around and it, it came down to, and I still remember it, I guess we were in year two and I had to decide, you know, it was getting bigger than we thought it would. We decided to expand into the U.S., you know, first of all, we didn't expect we would ever do that. We thought we would sell in Canadian health food stores and that would be it. I would tour for two weeks a year in the off season after racing and that would that would be kind of my role and I would continue racing. But I, I realized that as this was growing as fast as it 
was that I needed to make a decision. I had to decide, was I going to keep doing it the way I was, or was I going to fully commit and jump in and have this be my new career? And Charles was all in, you know, he had, um, he had a young family, he had a mortgage on his house, reverse mortgage. And, you know, he, he put everything into this. He had no safety net there. Like he was all in. So I felt it was the only, the only thing to do was really be, be all in with them. So that's the decision I made. I'd raced full time for seven years and I had my fun with it. And I thought it was, uh, it was the, the best thing to do. So there was a clear sort of demarcation that the pro triathlon career was going to be over so that you could focus on the business. And the decision to go into the U.S., was that through like Whole Foods or did you go state by state, hit California and go from there? How did how did you sort of approach it, uh, tackling the U.S. market? It, it was Whole Foods and it started off and this was actually, we realized later, this was probably one of the mistakes we made early on was trying to expand too quickly as uh, I think a lot of people do. But what had happened is the West Van Whole Foods was doing really well with it. And a person who worked there transferred to the Chicago, one of the Chicago Whole Foods, and told them about Vega that does really well there and wanted to bring it in. So we thought, okay, this is great. This is our, our step into the U.S. And it went there and then others wanted it quickly. And then it, it expanded very quickly. But that was a bit of a problem because it was still a very high educational needed product there had to be a lot of a lot of understanding around it to justify paying so much more for it and and at this point too it still didn't taste that great and it was still quite gritty so you had to really drink it for your health you had to really understand what was going on to appreciate the the value in it i think and so it was just sitting on the shelves in the u.s because we didn't have the the resources to expand to go around and do all the education and have the demos that we did here in canada so it, uh, it didn't do that great in the beginning. We had to really then bring it down to just regional and expand only within uh, our ability to, to really have a lot of presence in, in those areas and have me there speaking and have demo reps and really put a lot of resources into it to, uh, to help grow those regions. So yeah, we probably did go in a little early, but uh, you know it's hard to turn down those orders. That they come in and you want to fill them, and it's uh, it can can be tough. And I've seen other entrepreneurs make that same mistake. I think it's quite common, but uh, we definitely learned that one early. Coming up, why getting your product into a Walmart, Costco, or Whole Foods may well be the last thing you want to do. Did you make a, a very conscious decision to gear or, or target um, Vega towards just healthy living uh, as, as part of a, a, a you know better yeah just better nutrition versus uh, focusing you know primarily on the uh, endurance athlete? Yeah, we really did. It was, of course, my background being as a triathlete. You know, we felt that that was would give it some credibility, but it certainly wasn't, uh, wasn't our, our target. You know, of course, the triathlon market uh, is, is a lot smaller than just the generally uh, healthy market. So we felt that focusing on that general health and certainly not vegetarian or vegan, we've never focused on that. We knew that vegetarians and vegans would find out about the product. They would seek us out. We didn't have to market to them. So we always we're quite broad that way because as I was talking about before, some of the symptoms I was having that this helped me with, 
I think are very, very common. You know, adrenal fatigue is so common in North America due to not necessarily overtraining, but other types of stress. So overtraining is just physical stress, but other people, of course, have psychological stress, you know, from work and school and all these things. And, and that's common. So it could help them as well, we felt. And that was a big section of my book. I wrote about that and, uh, and it, it resonated with people. And when they drank Vega and not just drinking Vega, but also eating a certain way to help, uh, reduce cortisol, it can really make a big difference. And when people found that for themselves, then they, you know, they talked about it. They, they spread the word for us. And, and that's what really helped get us going was, was word of mouth. And then in 2015, uh, you sold, or you and Charles sold to Denver-based White Wave for US $550 million. Right. Yeah, it was, you know, it was just one of those things where I think the, the strategy from VMG was, was really sound as well. Like I say, they, that's what they do. You know, they, they buy into companies that are, are growing quickly and they have a template. They have a whole strategy from the time they get in to the time of exit. Um, and of course, they don't make money until there's an exit. So, you know, they're well incentivized to do that. And yeah, just a, a really good strategy around that. You know, one of the things too, just holding back, not selling internationally, because a lot of the, the value of a company is not just based on its sales, of course, it's based on its potential um, to go international. And we knew that any company that would buy us would have distribution. They're not buying distribution, they're buying a brand, they're buying what our values are, really, um, a, a complete brand. So, we knew that focusing on brand as opposed to distribution was going to be important and, and just getting sales per store up as, as much as possible. We'd said no to Costco many times. Um, and then eventually we said yes. And that was one of the, the big things that really put us over there was then it was all on our terms. You know, you just keep saying no. And then eventually they come back and, and they they give give you all the all the things you want. And uh, you know, that that was a good lesson for us too. Um, going into that sale and uh, and I think you know the market was good at the time and it was just uh, yeah it just all it all lined up. I would think for for a great many entrepreneurs the idea of of getting into a Costco or a Walmart would would really be the promised land in terms of getting their product out to the the widest number of people. What was it that did not appeal to you about the the Costco opportunity at least initially? Well, you know, back then too, now it's quite different because of the, the strength of on, online retail. But back then, you know, it was really, I mean, it was emerging then, but it was still a one-way street with brick and mortar stores. It was, you had to bend over backwards for them. You had to give them, you know, in the beginning with us, it was for Whole Foods, we had to give them two free tubs for every one they bought. You know, it was just this ridiculous setup, but they could do it because they knew you had to be in there if you're a small brand and you, you had no option. And now, of course, it's completely flipped. You go, you sell really strong online and they come to you and and just, you know, give you anything you want. So it's it's really turned. But that was part of it, too, was just it was, you know, bigger companies like that, they want small, innovative brands because it makes them look good. Um, they want to look like they're first to it and, and they, they get it and they're, you know, consumers like that to see new things in there. So it was, it was a benefit to Costco to have us in there. And, you know, we knew that. And, and that's when you can just, you can say no until the, the time is right. Um, and until the, the tables turn a little bit and they start offering you um, just more and more um, and better placement and uh, bigger orders and just the terms are just so much better. So, 
holding out and, and just really waiting, um, being patient with things like that, I think uh, is really important. And, you know, our goal from the beginning, of course, was to get plant-based food to as many people as possible. So having it in Walmart and Costco and Target and all these places is great because obviously that gets the volume up. It gets it more accessible as volume goes up, prices come down. So it's all, you know, that was all what we wanted in the beginning, but it just, we had to be patient. The, the issue of, of when you sold uh, and how much you sold for now, obviously uh, Charles would, would have been a beneficiary of a lot of that as well as, as VMG, uh, of course, and whatever other investors you had along the way. But what did that transaction mean to you personally? Uh, presumably it was a game changer. It, yeah, it definitely it changed my life. Um, not that I, I bought anything. Um, but uh, I could, so that's kind of nice to know. I just like that, uh, you know, I have options now. I can I can focus on things that I want to do, um, and just you know pursue projects that I, I think are really interesting and um, and fun and meaningful and 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 I value that a lot. I'm really grateful for that. So honestly, you haven't you didn't splurge a new a new Porsche, a, a West Van property with that hasn't been any sort of significant change in sort of your material standing no no i, I bought uh a, a house in in topanga canyon um in los angeles it's uh it's a teardown i'm still waiting on permits it's uh it's quite a process it's in a a protected area and there um, are protected oak trees on the property so it's actually really difficult to do any renovations but that's a whole other story but uh yeah i'm just waiting to uh to do some uh some renovations on that but yeah that's 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 it my car is uh it's a i guess 11 year old uh volkswagen golf it's uh you know nothing even close to to fancy which which i like you know i like to just keep it simple and not uh obviously i you know i've never been materialistic and uh i just don't see any yeah any, any appeal to that to be honest can I ask about your current role? So you're you're still with Vega. the The website still lists you as a as an ambassador. Does that occupy a, a significant part of your your time, your your continued uh, affiliation or, or commitment to the company? Yeah, I work with uh, with the, the new team very closely, as as you probably know too. Um, White Wave was sold to Danone, the the French company. So Vega is now owned by um, Danone, which is a, a huge company based in Paris. Uh, their U.S. headquarters are in New York. Um, I was uh, visiting them last week, and they're they're great. I, I really like them a lot. They have a, a very good vision. We're very aligned on um, on the direction for Vega, and uh, yeah, I work with them very closely. I'm in Vancouver at the the head office almost once a month now, working on new formulations and uh, new initiatives that uh, that we're pursuing, and I, I have to make sure the brand stays as as it is, and uh, I, you know, is I don't think any issue because Danone's very aligned that way. But um, it's part of my job as well, is just to make sure we we keep it as it is. Do you see the the product line evolving? When I think of Vega, I think of course of the the the, the powder and then and then the bars. Do you see it expanding sort of exponentially beyond that? Yeah, I do. We actually came out with crisps just um, a few weeks ago. So they're they're part of a new program we're doing where we just we make things and just sell them online. We don't even bother with retail. And then eventually, you know, if they do well, we'll we'll bring them into retail. But kind of like an incubator program where we launch really innovative, cool new Vega products 
on our e-store and through Amazon that we have. We have a really good partnership with Amazon now. And then, uh, like I say, if they're successful, if people like them, then we'll put them into to regular retail. So the first thing we've tried was we call them protein crisps. Um, and they're, they're really good. They're like chips, basically, that are made from, um, from pea protein. So 15 grams of pea protein. They, they taste really good. They're crunchy. It's um, just something different to, to try. And um, like I say, we'll see how they go. And if people like them, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll do more of that. And uh, we'll try some other things as well and just see what people like. Do you see a, a, a sort of a larger shift towards vegetarianism or vegan? And do you see that sort of unfolding at a pace that you had anticipated? Well, it's it's definitely picking up steam now. Um, you know, there's a, there's a film actually that uh, I'm one of the EPs on called Game Changers that will come out in the summer. It was at Hot Docs in Toronto. It was at Sundance this year. They did such a good job with it. It's It's really really well done it's about vegan athletes basically and the, the sort of new wave of vegan athletes and there are so many now and they're they're really amazing athletes and then not just vegan athletes but athletes who are eating mostly vegan or at least appreciate the value of eating more plant-based and we see that increasing very quickly now um, and i read recently too that there are 30 million people in the u.s who identify themselves as vegetarian um, which is you know amazing. That's about eight percent of the population in the U.S. So it's um, I really think we have hit this this tipping point. It's you know it doesn't seem weird anymore. It seems it's very logical. You know people will either do it for health concerns or environmental. Um, there have been some studies released uh, by the UN that talk about um, animal agriculture being the number one cause of um, of climate change, uh, even more so than. All, all transportation combined, which I think was a real eye-opener for people. So whether it's health, environment, or of course, you know, ethics, people don't want uh, to be just you know, raising and slaughtering animals. Um, so there's there are a lot of reasons why people may be interested in it, and uh, we're starting to, to really see that. Yeah, I, I hope that's the case. It's, it's something that I've thought a lot about. I, I've been a vegetarian for 32 years, and, and, and I think of when I first sort of made the move to today, how how the progress seems relatively slow in comparison to, you know, uh, issues around, say, gay rights or other social justice causes where I feel like the pendulum has really swung to a much more enlightened and progressive sort of uh, opinion. And I feel the vegetarianism is, has been a much slower uptick, relatively speaking, at least in comparison uh, to that. Yeah, I think it's... It's been a process for sure. You know, I mean, vegetarianism, of course, has been around for so long. And it's only really been the last, I'd say, three years that things have really seemed to increase rapidly. So, yeah, it, it doesn't feel like a steady progression from back when I started. It feels as though it was slow and definitely progression. But then, like I say, this last little bit, these last few years have really shot ahead in leaps and bounds. Yeah, that's encouraging. Uh, Brendan, I, I really want to thank you for your time today. Uh, it's been really an informative discussion. I'm glad we had a, an opportunity to do it. Yeah, thanks, Noel. I appreciate it. That was Brendan Brazier, co-founder of Vega. If you like this show, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite listening app. Drop us a review or let us know a disruptive Canadian business leader who you'd like to hear from. I'm Noel Holzman. You can reach me at nholzman at oath.com or find me on Twitter at at NG Holzman. 
This show was produced by Stephanie Warner. Special thanks to Abby Wiseman. See you next week. <laughs>